Did he knock back the crystal? I don't think so. There was never a union leader in Melbourne that tucked his knees under more billionaires' tables than the leader of the opposition. He lapped it up. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. No, 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 no. It's on. No, wait. Is it on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to the first episode of a brand new podcast from BuzzFeed Ozpol in Australia. My name is Alice Workman. Across from me is the political editor of BuzzFeed Ozpol, Mark Stefano. And Mark, is it on? I hope we can answer that by the end of the show. But yes, that is the title of our first ever podcast from BuzzFeed Australia. I can't believe they let us do this. <laughs> Neither can I. Um, just to let everyone know, we're currently sitting in the press gallery in Canberra, the heart of democracy of Australia. But um, we're in a cupboard, which is the official BuzzFeed <laughs> office. No windows, um, but there is a slight bit of aircon noise. So we're not in a studio. And if you do hear something, please don't switch off. <laughs> it's because if the aircon's not on, we will die. <laughs> we do have a little TV that shows uh, a camera. A, a live shot of the outdoors. A live shot of the outdoors. Yeah. So we can see if it's raining Just or windy. Just in case. Just in case. Um, this is our first episode and we're going to be putting them out in sitting weeks. So not every week, but they will kind of sprinkle out throughout the year and it'll be pretty much a summary of, of what's been going on in Canberra. So we really want you to get in touch with us on Twitter. Mark and I are both on Twitter. We're both on Facebook. Yeah. You can email us. Get in touch I can give you, if you DM me, I'll give you Mark's mobile number. That's true. Alice will do that. Uh, <laughs> and just tell us what you want to hear. What are the things you guys want to know about what's happening in the halls of Canberra? But Alice, um, you know, we do have some method to the madness. What are we expecting from the first podcast this week? Well, we're going to talk about the biggest news to rock the first day of Parliament in a very, very long time here in Canberra. And that is, of course, the defection of Cory Bernardi from the Liberal Party to his new conservative party and is it a party is it even a party it's not officially a party yet but there's a lot of talk about tents so <laughs> it's a big tent tent well he was outside the, no he was in the tent and now he's they were out, out of, of the tent. tent and now he has to get a new tent he's got to buy one man tent <laughs> <laughs> it's like a it's they're pretty like cheap a, at buttons i think he'll be okay a swag yeah it's a conservative swag yeah. so i'm going to be talking to a gallery veteran about cory bernardi give it a bit of historical context has it worked for people in the past was it a good idea and also, one of the big things that we want to do on this podcast is interview the main players and really see if we can break some new ground. So uh, this week, uh, I spoke to Foreign Minister Julia Bishop, which is super exciting because she um, probably has one of the hardest jobs uh, in the world right now because she's the one that has to get on the phone every time Donald Trump tweets and causes an absolute stir in the diplomatic community. So we will be talking to her about what emoji Donald Trump is and... <laughs> the South China Sea situation, because while it sounds boring, and to many people, uh, I'm sure their eyes will be glazing over right now about the South China Sea, it's so important and will be a huge issue for the next couple of weeks. And Julie Bishop was also caught up in the expenses scandal over That's summer, right. where That's the right. Turnbull government lost their health minister. 
That's right. And I think it's a it's a really interesting um, chance to talk to someone who is always seen at black tie events and at sporting events, Julie Bishop. She's somebody who um, really does get around for her job. And so it's interesting to hear her defense of attending sporting events and charging the taxpayer. So that's all coming up in this episode of the podcast. Fashion, democracy and more. Well, we're going to talk about some things at the end of the podcast as well that maybe might have been missed in all the kind of chaos and confusion this week. But first up, let's talk the big news story of the week. Malcolm Trumbull finally goes in for a swing. (laughs) Malcolm got his mojo back. Mark, this is uh, the first episode of the miniseries I would like to call... What big what? trumble in Little Canberra? Big, big trumble in Little Canberra. Look, um, this happened on Wednesday, um, which was the speech to the uh, House of Reps. I'm sure producer Nick can make sure that there's a little bit of trumble. Here we go. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, we've just heard from that great sycophant of billionaires, the leader of the opposition. All the lectures, the lectures he's trying to run, trying to run a politics of envy. When he was a regular dinner guest at Raheem, always there with Dick Pratt, sucking up to Dick Pratt. Did he knock back the crystal? I don't think so. There was never a union leader in Melbourne that tucked his knees under more billionaires' tables than the leader of the opposition. He lapped it up. Oh, yes, he lapped it up. Members on my he right. was such a sycophant, a social climbing sycophant, if ever there was one. There has never been a more sycophantic leader of the Labor Party than this one. And he comes here and poses as a tribune of the people. He like Harborside Mansions, he's yearning for one. He's yearning to get into Kirribilli House. You know why? Because somebody else pays for it. And just like he loved knocking back Dick Pratt's crystal, just look forward to living in luxury at the expense of the taxpayer. This man is a parasite. He has no respect for the taxpayer. He has no respect for the taxpayer any more than he has respect for the members of the Australian Workers' Union. He betrayed again and again. He sold them out. So that was Malcolm Turnbull in Question Time. Now, that was given in response to a question from Bill Shorten about the government's omnibus bill. It was actually a motion to suspend standing orders. And I think that the context around it is really important. And hopefully, again, this is what we want to do um, on this type of podcast. The reason why it was so interesting was because um, Bill Shorten gave a good 10-minute serve of Malcolm Turnbull. And he didn't actually have to speak to the suspension um, uh, motion. But uh, I saw I was up in the gallery and I saw Christopher Pine, who's the leader of the House of Representatives. He sidled up to Malcolm Turnbull and handed him like a, a list of handwritten notes and said to Malcolm Turnbull, you know what, it's it, maybe you should actually have a reply. And that's what we heard. We heard Malcolm Turnbull going on this 10 minute rant. And I tell you what, I have not been um, in Canberra for very long, but I've never seen the Liberal backbench reply in that way. It was incredible they were smacking their desks they were cheering it was and i think that um it was kind of what the liberal party's backbench has been waiting for from malcolm turnbull a bit of fire in the belly and um you know there's been a lot of people online that have been very angry with this sort of material that was in the speech you know calling bill shorten a sycophantic social climber 
but really it was a lot of red meat for the for the actual backbench. It was for liberal voters. And they, even on our Facebook page, they were sharing it like crazy. And I, I have never seen a reaction to a, a, a Malcolm Turnbull speech anywhere like that. Mm. So it was more a rallying cry for Malcolm to his backbenchers than necessarily uh trying to land a blow on Bill Shorten. Yeah, I, I think that um, a lot of people are getting a little bit ahead of themselves and saying, you know, this isn't going to win votes for um, for Malcolm Turnbull. But, you know, it's two years until an, uh, until an election. What he had to do this week was really rally his troops, and that's what he did with this, with this speech. I think it was a resurrection speech or a fight-back speech insofar as, you're right, we haven't seen Malcolm perform in that way since he was communications minister. He was, everyone would froth in question time when he was comms minister and he'd get a question and get up and just go through one by one the people on the opposite bench and berate them. It's been years since he's done that. I don't think I've even seen him give a speech anything like this that, you know, whether something has happened this week, Corey Bernardi leaving or the allegations about the Trump phone call that has, you know, sparked him to, pushed him to the level where he snapped and gave one of gave this kind of quite good oration. I don't know what it was that sparked it, but it was it it created a, a reaction within the press gallery, which maybe, <laughs> maybe some people overreacted, but if you put it in the context of everyone up here knows he has the capacity to do it and they haven't seen it in a long time mm. and they just, you know, whether whatever side you support, whoever you want to throw your allegiance behind, good performances are good performances. And I think everyone in the gallery wants to see a good fight from both sides. Yeah, and Canberra's a very small place. I think that people forget that even a little bit of fire or a little bit of excitement can really ripple out and, mm. and, and recharge the troops. I mean, you were saying to me earlier this week that um, it was all anyone could talk about when you were when, when you were talking to people in the wake of it. And I think that that's the same reaction I was getting from Liberal MPs who were just like, where has that Malcolm been? Where and has he been? It, where has he been? And I, I think that... Um, even if all it is is rallying the Liberal troops, A, and B, a little bit of an attitude change for him himself, I, mm. think, it, I, I think that that can actually be an end in itself. It doesn't need to be about swaying swing voters. Mm. I think what we did see the day after, which was Labor MPs taking their turn in trying to push back against it. Um, Shrill. They it called was, it shrill. They called it shrill. Personable. And angry. And you know, it was interesting, you know, Julie Gillard's was called the misogyny speech. They, they were calling it the know your place speech. So they were saying that anyone who calls um, somebody a sycophantic social climber, the subtext of it is essentially um, know your place. You know, he may have gone to private school, Bill Shorten, but he was trying to climb the social ladder in Melbourne, sucking down on Dick Pratt's crystal, as he did say. Mm. But I think it was a really... People should know their place and servants their enter place. through the back door. I would love to hear people's reaction to it as well. So if you do um, if you do have a negative reaction, please hit us up and... Yeah. and, and Tell and us so why. I think the background of it was the fact that he'd been berated for weeks about his $1.75 million donation. There was also the fact that he was um, being sledged by people over the Trump phone call. And I think even going back to Peter Credlin, who was the former um, chief of staff to Tony Abbott calling him Mr. Harborside Mansion, I think he'd had enough. And that's what we saw. And also to put it into context for what's been happening behind the scenes in Canberra this week, after Corey Bernardi's defection, which 
some in the Liberal Party seem to be a bit surprised by, there's been a lot of speculation about it, but it seemed to really kind of shock a few people that he would actually jump out and do it because they didn't think it was a good idea, probably. Mm. Um, uh, ever since that's happened, uh, the Prime Minister has been having uh, meetings with every single individual backbencher, 30-minute meetings, I which is quite that. a big deal because he's obviously a very busy man and he has a, he has a group of about 10 staffers whose job it is just to liaise with the backbenchers and keep them happy. But he's obviously thought, well, that's not good enough. So I'm going to have to step in and just one-on-one, start of the year, make sure everyone's okay. So he did, that, okay. Did, he did that this week? He's doing that this week. There's been a big defection and One Nation are polling really well and the two major parties have been squabbling over who loves millionaires and billionaires more. Well, the person in Canberra who's probably got the best insight into how Malcolm's going at the moment is, in fact, our next guest, Mark. That's right. The Deputy Liberal Leader, Julie Bishop, we did go into her office and, of course, the conversation started about emojis. Uh, thank you so much, Foreign Minister Julia Bishop, uh, for being the first guest on uh, BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. Um, thanks so much for being here. I'm honoured. Thank you for inviting me. Um, last time you and I spoke, uh, we uh, I think we may have got into a bit of trouble because or caused a bit of a diplomatic incident um, because you described the Russian uh, the Russian President Vladimir Putin with the red emoji. Indeed, I recall the interview rather well. You would ask me a question and I'd have to respond in emoji. And you asked me what emoji would uh, I use for the Russian president. And I used the red face. Now, there is a, an argument about what that means. I'm told it's the pouting emoji. <laughs> so pouting President Putin. So that's the reason why you did it. Indeed. So can I ask you what you would use as an emoji for Donald Trump? Probably the emoji with the uh, the question mark, you know, the one where the emoji is, uh, the face is looking quizzically. Like a bit confused? Like a little bit curious. A bit curious. Mm. Is that because you yourself in the last couple of weeks have been a bit confused? I think people generally are interested in the new administration's policies and are seeking to reconcile some of the campaign rhetoric with the administration's platform. And it's a new administration. It's only been in existence for three weeks now. So we are all, I think, assessing the new administration's approach to US foreign policy and domestic policy. I think that there's, I mean, the, the sort of sense I get from people in Australia as well is a little bit of concern. Um, I think we're sort of walking into uncharted waters in many ways. Um, do you sort of understand where that comes from? You know, Australians are looking to US politics and they're sort of scratching their heads and kind of confused about what's coming out of America right now? There is a level of global uncertainty and anxiety about uh, change and whether it's Brexit, the unexpected, in some people's views, decision of the British people to leave the European Union after so many decades, the election of Donald Trump as president, which was not picked by the pundits, the pollsters, the political experts, uh, causes people to question, to be concerned. But I will judge the administration on its performance, um, its approach towards Australia. And I have to say, our initial contact with the new members of the administration has been exceedingly positive, And I'm very reassured that the Australia-US alliance will continue to remain the bedrock of our security and defence relationship and, of course, our um, security and prosperity in the region. You've got, even this week in the Australian Parliament, you've got the Greens launching 
uh, moves in the Senate to ban Donald Trump from coming to Australia. Um, uh, some on your side are already saying, you know, it's a political stunt. But even in the UK, the House of Commons Speaker has said that Trump shouldn't be allowed to address the com Commons. What's your view on that? Do you think that um, it's, it's understandable that you've got people uh, like the House of Commons Speaker who are refusing to let Trump to address, um, address the, the Parliament? Donald Trump is the President of the United States, the world's largest economy, the world's only superpower. The United States is our security and defence guarantor, our major defence partner, our major economic partner. It's our second largest trading partner, by far our largest foreign direct investor. We are close like-minded nations and of course President Trump should be afforded all the dignity and respect that a person who has been elected to that role um, should command. So you think if if Mr Trump were to come to Australia you'd expect him to address the parliament? Of course. Like any he, other US leader? Of course, leader. He's, he's the President of the United States. People shouldn't confuse uh, different personalities with the role of the President of the United States. And uh, he's a very different person, a very different personality from Barack Obama, who was a very different person and personality from George W. Bush. We don't descend into personalities. We look at the role, the significance of that person's um, position and the importance of the Australia-US alliance, not just to our two countries, but to our region and beyond. Do you think that his personality is um, doesn't really lend itself to stability? Like he is trying to shake things up? He is most certainly trying to shake things up. It's not business as usual. And he campaigned on that platform uh, that he is anti-establishment. He was going to, quote, drain the swamp, which means shake things up in Washington. And he's certainly done that. But I would think his initial policy pronouncements have pleased his supporters enormously. But I've also had very positive conversations with Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Tillerson. And I believe that Australia has a unique opportunity to present our perspectives, our view of the world, to a new administration that is looking for new ideas, looking for new ways of doing things. When, you, um, when that first executive order, the travel ban came out, you know, it really did shock a lot of people around the world. Um, you know, Western allies have come out in, in, in condemnation. I was just wondering, I mean, you yourself were in the US at that time. What was your initial reaction, even personally, to hearing the news that they were they were placing this ban on, on, on travel from seven countries? This was consistent with a number of policies that candidate Trump announced during the election campaign. Uh, what I think has concerned people is that he is actually seeking to implement a number of matters that he raised in the campaign and a number of commentators believed that he would not uh, put into practice what he had campaigned upon. Well, he's proving that he will. And so I was not surprised to that extent. I think that uh, President Trump believes he has a mandate on a whole range of issues that he took to the election that he campaigned upon, and he's seeking to implement them. Uh, we take a different approach. We think that uh, we should work closely with the administration to persuade them to our perspective, to advocate our national interests, to explain our view of the world. And I think that will be far more effective. Megaphone diplomacy rarely delivers the outcome you're seeking. But I guess megaphone diplomacy, I mean, you must wake up every morning and sort of scroll through Twitter and like 
you know, you see those Donald Trump tweets and he's changing diplomacy in 140 characters. Doesn't that concern you as the foreign minister? Coming from BuzzFeed, I would have thought that you would be impressed by I mean, a world I, leader I, I, that I, used I'm, Twitter. I, I'm, I'm waking up every morning at about 6am and I'm just, you know, rapidly going through what the news has been from the night before. I can imagine it's also a, a pang of anxiety, you know, has he tweeted about us? And because he did, he has been tweeting about Australia. Yes, he has, and most recently very positively. And we have to come to terms with the new president's style, uh, just as we do with any new president, new leader of a country that matters so much to Australia. So I don't focus so much on that. I'm focusing on the outcomes. What can we achieve in Australia's interests with the new administration? And I'm feeling very positive about that. So you don't, you know, tweet comes out, you don't send it around to the DFAT officers and people aren't running around saying, he's tweeted, he's tweeted. I think the DFAT officers are well and truly on top of Twitter and uh, have added that to the matters that they must consider each day. Um, years ago, diplomacy was conducted through cables, the system of sending cables from our missions overseas back to Australia. But now with instant communication, with online um, media, with social media, and the fact that there's so much more informality between leaders and foreign ministers. I have the mobile phone numbers of many foreign ministers. We text each other, whereas years ago there would have been quite a formal process before there could be contact between uh, two respective foreign ministers. Speaking of how Trump will impact um, our region, I mean, there's probably no bigger issue than the South China Sea. China has a particular perspective uh, and has made claims. A number of other countries, including Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, have claims. We don't take sides on these competing claims. There are many countries who have um, disputed maritime claims. Australia is in negotiations with East Timor, for example, over maritime claims. What we urge is that the various claimants pursue their differences in a peaceful way, that they negotiate outcomes rather than resort to conflict. We urge all parties to um, ensure that none of their actions add to tensions in the South China Sea, and that they negotiate their differences and, if necessary, take it to arbitration under international law, uh, which the Philippines did do. And they were so successful, though, the Philippines, in, they, that, in that? There was, there was a significant clarification of uh, various issues in the South China Sea. China did not um, acknowledge that rationale, that reasoning from the international arbitration, but the Philippines and China are now in negotiations to resolve their differences. Likewise, there are 10 Southeast Asian nations, the ASEAN countries, who are currently negotiating with China for a code of conduct that would govern behaviour in the South China Sea. Where our interests lie is that about two-thirds of our export trade passes through the South China Sea. So we want to ensure that there's unimpeded trade, that no claimant state can stop us, uh, passing through the South China Sea in accordance with international law. So it's called maintaining our rights to freedom of overflight, that is our planes, freedom of navigation, that is our ships and vessels. Is there a, a, a sort of view that Australia can play like a, a broker in, in these sort of negotiations, that we are in many ways the negotiator who comes in? And I, I think even speaking about the new US administration, they have sort of already signalled they'd like to take more of a role when it comes to issues like this. 
I wouldn't put it that way, but Australia most certainly is a friend to China. They are our largest trading partner. We are also deeply engaged with other claimant countries, including Vietnam. And the United States, as I, I described, is our uh, alliance partner and an important economic partner. What Australia can do is uh, use our relationships with various countries to advocate a point of view. Invariably, Australia wants countries to adhere to what we call the international rules-based order. That is, there are a set of international rules that we all play by, what countries can and can't do in their dealings with each other. And that international rules-based order has been upheld by the United States since the Second World War. They have been the defender and the guarantor, if you like, of the international rules-based order. So we call on all countries to adhere to the rules and for China to be a responsible regional and global power, for the United States to continue its leadership role in our part of the world. And Australia will, um, we will carry out the role that we can best do, which is to put our perspective, to seek to influence, all in the name of peace, stability, security and prosperity in our region. Coming back here locally, one of the biggest issues has been expenses over the course of the last few weeks. And um, Malcolm Turnbull this week did, you know, do a, do a big thing in trying to change that. Um, I think that there's a lot of, even among our audience, there's a lot of anxiety when they see photos of politicians hobnobbing at sporting events or the races or whatever. Do you think that it sends a bad signal, politicians going to these events on the taxpayer dime? I think there needs to be an understanding of the role of an elected representative. Uh, we are continually asked to be out and amongst people, to be at community events, to be supporting uh, national events, to be supporting uh, public events. And that's one of the roles as a, an elected representative. What Malcolm Turnbull has done is um, introduce a level of transparency and accountability that means um, people can access politicians' business expenses on a regular basis. So do you think that attending sporting events is part of that? Do you think that, you know, a politician is expensing the taxpayer for going to, say, the AFL Grand Final or going to the the polo or whatever? Do you think that that, that that is actually something that should be clamped down on? Well, what happens is um, politicians are invariably required to be in a particular city. Um, I live in Perth. Most of my business is done in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra because that's where the populations are, that's where businesses are, that's where headquarters are, that's where NGOs are, that's where um, governments are. So I have to travel as part of the job and I wouldn't want anybody to think that just because you're elected from Western Australia you're not allowed to uh, travel as part of your work to the East Coast because that's of course part of it. Uh, but you are uh, very often invited in your role as an elected representative or in my case as the deputy leader of a, a national political party to represent the party or to represent the government um, in my role as foreign minister at important national events. And it is part of your job. Um, I attended the grand final last year. I was specifically invited to sit at a table of Chinese investors who the AFL was seeking to have invest in the AFL and in um, sporting teams. It was a business lunch. I was required to sit there with an interpreter and spend uh, my time at that lunch uh, selling Australia as an investment destination. That's my job as foreign minister. Nikki Stavo, the political commentator, was um, said today that she hasn't seen a worse start of a government 
um, for many, many years. And I was just wondering whether you agreed with that. Of course not. Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> you're going to say that. No, I'm not going been... to say that. I think it's a, 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 a an inappropriate comment to make. Um, never seen a worse start from a government. What, the Whitlam government? When she it must comes be kidding. To, when it comes to this calendar year, though, so she's talking about things like the Susan Lee um, situation with what happened this week with Corey Bernardi as well. Do you think that you've... You've got a, You've started chaotically this year. Not at all. I remember uh, the beginning of the uh, 1996 government. They lost seven ministers. There's there's absolutely no comparison. Uh, but I believe that what we've been able to achieve is uh, a significant passage of important legislation last year. Some very significant industrial relations laws that had not been able to be passed um, previously. Uh, the reintroduction of the Australian Building and Construction Commission is bringing law and order back onto the construction sites across Australia. A million people are employed in the building and construction industry and at last we've got the rule of law being enforced back um, against these militant unions that flout Australian laws. Uh, the Registered Organisations Act, which means that union officials will be held to the same account as company directors are to their shareholders. Very significant legislation. Uh, we're pursuing a tax cuts to make Australia a competitive environment for more investment. I think we have a very strong agenda and we're delivering on it. And um, there will be always issues along the way. Uh, but we don't get sidetracked. We don't lose our focus. What we're doing is delivering for the Australian people. What about when it comes to, you've been the Deputy Liberal Leader for a long time now, um, you've seen some party leaders come and go. A lot of people do say, you know, what about Prime Minister Julie Bishop? Why why has that never sort of come to fruition? Why are you always I have the never deputy? sought it. But why not? Because I entered Parliament with a, a desire to, if I could, be the Foreign Minister of Australia and I have achieved that aim and I'm very proud and honoured to be the Foreign Minister and uh, other people have different ambitions. This is mine. Hey, Mark, what's Julie Bishop's office like? Um, what can I say that's not going to get me uh, kicked <laughs> out of the building? Well, she sort of sits at an L-shaped desk. Oh. Um, she has an iPad Plus at her desk. Oh. And uh, there are quite a few photos of herself with foreign dignitaries around the back of, like, working as, like, a splashback for her desk, um, and she sat in front of um, an Australian flag. So it was very patriotic. It was a very patriotic setting for Any our chat. Any pictures of Christopher Hemsworth? Well, that's actually a really good question because I didn't sort of focus on the photos. Now I'm thinking I should have to Mark, figure out. Mark, the first thing you beautiful do. Beautiful Thor. Scope the celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm obviously not the only person who got a chance to speak to someone for our inaugural episode Alice, who did you speak to? That's right. So I've spoken to Tony Wright, who is a gallery veteran. He works across the hall around the corner from our cupboard at the Fairfax Bureau. Wait, so how long have you been in Canberra for, Alice? Me? This is my third year anniversary. Third year. And mm. so you're talking about a veteran. What makes a veteran down in the press gallery? Okay. A gallery veteran is someone who's done more budgets than the time you get for murder. <laughs> so Tony's nearly been here for three decades. So... Probably a double homicide. And I think it's really important um, to put Corey Bernardi's mass big announcement that, you know, obviously stole the headlines for a couple of days. It's really important to put these things into some historical perspective. And that's what you did. 
In news that uh, seemed to surprise no one except for his colleagues this week, uh, South Australian Senator Cory Bernardi decided that he would defect from the Liberal Party and start his own conservative movement that uh, we're tentatively calling the Australian Conservative Party at the moment, but I don't believe it's actually been officially registered. To get an idea of how this sits in Australian political history and whether he will actually have any success as an independent sitting on the crossbench, I'm joined by Tony Wright, the National Affairs Editor of The Age. Tony, welcome to the first episode of our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, just to give the, the listeners some idea, how long have you been in the gallery? How many, how many of these kind of defections have you seen? Uh, quite a lot. Uh, I've been, this is the 28th year in the press gallery, so I go back to the days of, uh, of Hawkey and, and Keating and, 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 and all that. So do you think... There's been a lot of murmurings about Cory Bernardi being unhappy with the Liberal Party and a lot of his colleagues this week have pointed out that he hasn't been standing up for Liberal Party policy but rather using the last two or three years to just attack party process. Why were people so surprised and what do you think finally pushed him over the edge to go? Look, I I don't think anyone was terribly surprised. It was simply that it was the start of the year and that we were all short of a story. And uh, there was Corey doing what everyone knew he was going to do. But I guess in a place like Canberra, you don't really expect people to go that final step um, and and put everything um, that you that has been built for you, and it has been built for him by the Liberal Party, aside and, and, and head off. Cory Bernardi, I think, is probably uh, going to discover that he's uh, on a one-way track to obscurity um, <clears throat> because the area that he wants to colonise has already been colonised by Pauline Hanson out there. Uh, he certainly has quite a few followers, uh, but he has made sure that he's got a Senate spot for another six, five, five and a half years um, up his sleeve because most unlikely that he'd be getting back in South Australia. Mm. Most of his followers are in Queensland. So we might not see Corey in the headlines anytime soon unless it is a shocking revelation. His colleagues are so angry that the dirt unit would be activated as we speak, mm. searching for anything that they could use against him. They really, really are angry, and I think with some reason, that uh, he has stood for an election, one election in the Senate for uh, the Liberal Party, and now has taken that out of the Liberal Party and, and, and is remaining in Parliament. Cory Bernardi was a backbencher you know, famous only for being thrown off the front bench for uh, suggesting that uh, gay marriage could somehow or other be a slippery slope towards legalising bestiality and polygamy. Uh, Since then, you know, apart from um, those within the Liberal Party like him who uh, had been agitating for a a maintenance of uh, views to the right... He hasn't got much, it didn't have much traction. Tony Wright, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. So, interestingly, and this is obviously something that Tony and yourself didn't speak about, but there was a quote going viral this week in the wake 
of Cory Bernardi's defection. And it was from a monthly article that was published in 2011. And I want to read it to the people at home, Alice, because it is so stunning. And I think it's really, I guess, illustrative of the kind of guy that Corey Bernardi is. I think it's really important everyone pitches Corey with his shirt off with the six pack (laughs) while they're listening to this quote. Yeah, the shredded Corey Bernardi, um, who was once a professional rower um, from South Australia. So this is a quote from the monthly in 2011. Sinead, with whom he has two sons, aged 10 and 12, says they have the perfect marriage because they are, quote, both in love with the same man. Corey obviously has this huge belief in himself. If you didn't love a guy who was so in love with himself, you had a lot of trouble living with Corey. Life, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, is all about Corey. I am all about Corey, and he is all about Corey. So it makes it easy. Find someone who loves you as much as Corey Bernardi loves loves himself. himself. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the way we're going to end each show is to talk about something that has been put in the bin. The bottom of the bin. So finally this week, Alice, what is one of the things that you found in the bin? Well, we mentioned it earlier, the giant omnibus bill. Now, an omnibus bill is just a slang word for a bunch of bills that the government tie together and try and get through in one vote as Mm. opposed to 15 separate votes. Now, the government came out earlier in this week and they talked about the changes that they were going to make to paid parental leave and the family tax benefits, but buried down deep, 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 (laughs) hundreds of pages into this bill was one of the so-called zombie measures that was first raised in 2014 when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister and Joe Hockey was Treasurer. What was that? It is the changes they want to bring into welfare. So it affects people that are under 25. It includes two different measures. One is putting in a weight for anyone that wants to get the dole, so that's unemployment benefits. And the other one is changing what kind of money you can access if you're under 25. So there's two different types of welfare. There's dole money, so if you're unemployed, and there's youth allowance, which is mainly for students. Youth allowance is a less amount than a dole amount. But what they want to do is, because the budget is over and they need to look at the bottom line, is push people who are eligible to earn the higher amount so it's, $5.29 per fortnight um, for Newstart, the dole money. They want to push anyone under 25 down to the lower youth allowance amount. So that's $437 per fortnight. Effectively, cutting 90 bucks out of people's fortnightly budget, which if you're someone that's paying rent, and you've only got a you know a low paying casual job, but or you're even studying. a student like a student studying full time, right? Absolutely, and they've got caps on the amount that you're allowed to earn next to that amount, so it has a really big impact. And then if you think on top of that, if you want to get the dole, they were going to make you wait for four weeks. When it was first introduced in 2014, they did say they wanted six months, and everyone kind of went, "Oh, that's a bit ridiculous." So that was in the 2014 budget. That was the horrific one that Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey brought down. The first budget yeah. under the the new the new Liberal government under Tony Abbott. So they proposed a six month wait. Now this six month wait was based but it's a six month wait for any any young person under 25. Anyone under 25 who's getting trying any money. to apply for Commonwealth assistance. Say yes. they lose their job or whatever, and they need to go on the dole. If they went and tried to apply for the doll, they have to wait for six months before they get any money. What was the rationale behind that? The rationale is that they hope that un- young unemployed people 
would be forced into going out and getting a job and not just abusing welfare by, as someone famously said two years ago, sitting around on the couch, eating cheesels and playing video games. And smoking bongs? That was a direct quote from a Liberal MP, a backbencher. That's what they think that young people on the dole do. Um, but I do that, I do that, <laughs> and I'm a gamefully employed BuzzFeed uh, employee. Yeah, no judgment, whatever. But interestingly, what you're saying is, is that it started out of six months, the wait. It then got pilloried and then it came down to four weeks. Is that right? So last year, they, brought, they tried to bring the measures back again and they reinvented it as a four-week wait. Now, the four-week wait is allegedly based off a system in New Zealand and a similar system in Ireland where they made young people go to the doll office, sign up, prove that they had spent a few weeks applying for jobs before they could get any money. A very similar system. But the catch is... Both those systems were scrapped. So not only was the four-week number plucked out of nowhere by the government, but it's actually been proven that these types of of kind of harsh welfare reforms don't work. And so they tried to bring it through last year and a majority of the crossbenchers in the Senate said, no, we won't support this. And so this week, without telling anyone, they tried to sneak it back in as part of this giant omnibus bill and think that maybe no one would notice. And so you've done the numbers this week. And, I've done the numbers, Mark. And what's and, and and you don't think it's got a very good chance. It doesn't. It doesn't have unless something drastically changes. It doesn't have a good chance. So at the moment, it's a little bit complicated. But I'll explain the way the Senate voting works. So the government don't have a majority. <laughs> this in is the, like uh, people are listening at home and just thinking, "Oh, Alice Workman's going to explain <laughs> the Senate, the numbers in the Senate crossbench for me." <laughs> Come on, Alice. <laughs> speak speak crossbench numbers to me. Okay. So the Senate, I'm also is, not being a Senate is half I the really size want... of the House of Representatives. It's the upper house and it's the second house that bills go to. They do like a final check. It's like a proofread on every bill, right? The government don't have a majority. So they need to convince the crossbench, especially if Labor and the Greens aren't on their side, which they're not in this case. They need to convince, you know, the utopia of the crossbench to get along with them. The crossbench is made up of people like Jackie Lambie, Darren Hinch, David Linehelm from the Liberal Democrats, the One Nation Party and the Nick Xenophon team. But the, the most important thing now is that is that with this mega omnibus bill, the reason why they put it all together, all the measures that in some way are unpopular apart, they bring them all together and they essentially try to force these small crossbench to vote on all of them. Yeah, so the idea behind um, bringing it in an omnibus is to make sure that the deals that they do and they have already done with people, so, for example, the government have gonna, done a couple of gun deals with David Linehelm so he can get a shooting range. Within that agreement, we don't know the exact details, but in there, David Linehelm has agreed to support this welfare measure. So originally, when it was six months and when it's been brought up for a vote before, he's gone against it because he said... Even though I'm a, I'm a libertarian, I have a heart and I don't think we should be being cruel to young people who need welfare. But something's changed in the last six months and he's changed his mind and now he's voting in favour of the dull weight. But the government at the moment, are, it's a bit more complicated because not only has Corey moved to the crossbench, but also we've got Rod Carlton, who was a One Nation senator. Gone. Who's gone. So we've got a vacant question mark for One Nation. And the South Australian uh, Family First Senator Bob Day is also gone. Go so the government need, they don't have Labor, they don't have the Greens, so they need nine out of the ten crossbench to get anything through. Okay, so Alice, tell me quickly, what are the nine out of the ten then? Okay, so if we start with all ten, Corey Bernardi, we're, we're assuming, is going to vote with the government, right? 
David Leinhelm has confirmed he is voting with the government. Okay. One Nation have said they are as well. So that's five in favour. So they need to get to nine. Let's go to Darren Hinch. He's a question mark. So maybe maybe they've got six. Uh, let's go to Jackie Lambie. Uh-uh. Oh, they're one down. They can only afford to lose one more vote, Mark. <laughs> but guess what? The Nick Xenophon team of three members and one, two, three have all said they're voting against right. it. Right. So, so Xenophon- four of the ten yeah. are voting against it. There's no way this bill so, can pass. So in the Senate of 2017, really, it's down to Xenophon or Pauline Hanson who can essentially scuttle any of the government's legislative agenda. Absolutely. The only trick that they could pull here is they could do an amendment to that section of the bill, but we have to wait and see in how the government negotiate. That's a good... Unfortunately, as they've told us this week, we don't know what the crossbench are going to do until they call for a vote. Which is a really great way to run a government, isn't it? And Mark, what have you found at the bottom of the bin this week? Well, quickly, the thing that I um, am really intrigued by was the fact that a story that came up and we reported on it went away really quickly, which is the fact that George Christensen, the Liberal National MP from Queensland, lover of Donald Trump, actually tweeted out some pretty interesting opinions on the website Twitter. Um, he Twitter.com. Twitter.com, the website. Um, the, the thing that we all spend too much time on. He tweeted um, a bunch of pro-Russia and pro-Putin um, lines. Hit there me with some one, tweets. I think Russia is demonised unfairly. What threat do they cause us or the West? That was one. Another tweet. It's a democracy referring to Russia. Eastern Ukraine slash Crimea are ethnically Russian. Russian, real reason ISIS is losing. Hacking is hashtag fake news. So I think it was really interesting that um, a member of the government was willing to come out and defend Putin and Russia for the invasion of Crimea, not two years from the downing of MH17 and Tony Abbott's famous saying that he was going to shirt front Vladimir Putin. You bet you are, you bet I am. You you are, you bet I am. I think it was really interesting because um, uh, George Christensen um, has a lot of power at the moment because he really does strap on the vest and jump out um, as a bomb thrower quite often um, in the media. And he decided to delete those tweets. And I spoke to him over Twitter direct message in the wake of it, and I said, George, did someone talk to you about the tweets? Like, why were you pushing out some pro-Putin stuff? He said, I deleted them as it was a distraction and people were misinterpreting my views, Um, which was pretty interesting because Labor MP Tim Watts um, was someone who jumped all over the story really quickly, and he sent me... um, Has he got a Twitter alert for George's Twitter account? (laughs) He probably does. (laughs) Tim Watts is waiting around his office, waiting for George Christensen to tweet. He said... The post-fact politics that is currently assaulting American democracy through outlets like Infowars and Breitbart now seem to be migrating to Australia. I think it's something interesting to watch, which is the Australian right are now starting to really um, get their news from overseas, from different media sources. So you do see Australian right-wing commentators start posting Infowars articles and Breitbart articles and, you know, a whole bunch of news sources that we don't normally consider reputable. That's where this story came from this week, which I think was something to look forward to in the future. All right, Mark, we've had a bit of fun, but I think it's time to wrap things up here and I'm going to ask you one final question, the question that we're going to ask at the end of every episode, and that is, is it on? I don't think it is. Oof. Stand down, everyone. (laughs) It is not on! (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Another podcast. It's that easy. I'm Mark Stefano, and you can hit me up on Twitter at at Mark Steff. It's Mark Stiffy to his friends. I'm Alice Workman. My Twitter handle is at Workman Alice. And 
I guess it's not on. Mm-hmm.